Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Jodie Richardson. Jodie is a professional speaker, author, and educator who specializes in helping parents and teachers work through the challenges and opportunities associated with a child's mental health, well-being, and happiness, as well as their own. Jodie is a mother of two children who she raises with her husband together with their beloved Border Collies. In this conversation, Jodie and I explore what is anxiety, the various forms of anxiety, including generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, and health anxiety, the impact anxiety has on the way that we feel, function, and relate to others, the obvious and subtle ways anxiety can present in our daily lives, how we can support others that are experiencing anxiety, the nuances of anxiety medication, and practical ways to soothe an anxious mind. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jody Richardson. Welcome, Jody, to the School of Wellbeing. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Meg. It's so good to be with you. I am thrilled that you are here to share with us your story and your strength and your skills when it comes to the world of anxiety, because I believe that if people understand the nuances more, we can live with a little bit more joy, a little bit more courage, mm. and a little bit more compassion. So I'd love to start with, how did you get so curious in the idea of anxiety and understanding it? Hmm. It was, you know, it, it's funny. I don't know if you've heard the expression, um, we make work from our wounds. <laughs> and and so I think, you know, really for me it, it was 20 years between sort of first symptoms and a diagnosis. So that was, you know, f- first of all, when I realised that I had what I thought was just part of my personality was really actually something that was a problem and and something that was understood, well understood medically and that lots of other people struggled with the same challenges and that it could be treated was such a relief. It You know, but it, this was only, I was only diagnosed with anxiety once I, I had been uh to the doctor for symptoms of depression because uh, life was just becoming uh, very black and white, very hopeless and very sad. And there was nothing in my set of circumstances. When I stopped and looked at my circumstances, the circumstances of my life were wonderful. So I was very aware when my life circumstances were fantastic, but I was feeling really low that something was wrong. And that's why I went and actually sought help. And it was only after starting to get help for my depression that it was really identified that anxiety had been the root cause of, you know, a a lot of issues I'd been having throughout my life that I just wasn't aware were an issue. I just thought that was just how everybody lived. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that, that was sort of how I came to understand where I was at. And, you know, I was teaching at the time when I understood, you know, more about my mental health. And I left teaching to go and work for Beyond Blue because I felt immediately, uh, propelled or compelled to make a difference and to start, you know, educating others. And I guess that was sort of the start of the journey uh, that has led me to where I am today, many, many years later. (laughs) Oh, I think that's absolutely remarkable. And I think it's really interesting that point you raised that you just thought it was a part of your personality. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that because that idea of, you know, a fish doesn't know the water that it swims in and what's what sometimes. and, And it's not until we're experiencing something completely different where we think, wow, maybe there's more here. So that beautiful step of you getting help when you're feeling that depressed state allowed you to understand yourself better and what you were going through and how you could understand that. So when it comes to anxiety, what actually is it? Hmm. Anxiety is our brain and our body's response in anticipation of a threat. So it's how our body prepares based on signaling from the brain when a threat is detected. And it could be, you know, it could be a threat that's sort of, you know, obvious and, uh, you know, very uh, presenting a real and present danger to us. You know, we're walking along a, a path and, you know, e- even just to 
just to feel a spider web, you know, we'll recoil, you know, because there could be, you know, a threat to our safety by continuing. And so it, it's reflexive. Uh, listeners will will most likely be able to recognise a time when they've reacted instinctively to get themselves out of danger. And, you know, the, the body and the brain are amazing. Um, you know, it's the fight or flight response. There's a bit more to it, uh, but, it, you know, that's generally how I, I like to talk about it. Um, and so, you know, it's really protective and adaptive. It's there to keep us safe. But, you know, for people like me who have uh, an anxiety disorder, uh, lots of people do and lots of people experience anxiety in lots of different ways, um, we have that part of our brain, the amygdala, is really sensitive to threat and so detects threat really where there isn't any threat to our safety and it could just be you open your inbox and there's 100 new emails. That can be enough to set off, you know, a sensitive amygdala and it just starts this cascade of changes. So it's, it's different to fear in the sense that fear is, you know, if, if, you, if you are afraid of spiders and, uh, you know, a spider was to start walking across the floor, you would, you would experience fear because there is a, a genuine, in your mind, threat to your safety. But the next time you're in that same space and there's no spider, you're experiencing anxiety. You're anticipating that something could be coming, you know. And so uh, that's that's how I like to explain the difference. But a great way to think about it is just like a smoke alarm in the brain. The smoke detector is the amygdala. It detects threat and it sounds the alarm and that's really what uh causes this cascade of physiological changes that uh, we experience, uh, you know, when we become anxious. Mm. So it sounds like when we're anxious, it's normal, it's protective, our body's doing what it needs to do. However, we can get stuck. We can get stuck in this feeling and it can present more and more. And that can potentially lead to impacts in our health, impacts in maybe our relationships and the way that we show up at work. So I'd love for you to explain the different types of anxiety and how it can present in different ways? Yes, absolutely. And and just on that note uh, before what you said about getting stuck, it's just it's just something I wanted to, uh, you know, just thank you for sharing that perspective because it, it's very true. You know, all day we go through, you know, we go from our, from our green zone, which is our rest and digest when our nervous system is calm. We're cool, calm and collected, cool as a cucumber. And we can learn and engage and, um, you know, we feel like we want to connect with people. And then, you know, throughout the day, we can sort of waver between feeling like that and and, and our fight or flight nervous system maybe potentially being triggered, you know, here and there. And it, But then we, you know, we might have a door slam, for example, and then we kind of, we, we have that reaction. Uh, those of us, I say we, you know, the, the general, those of us that are easily startled, which is one of the signs, you know, one of the symptoms of anxiety. Um, but then you'll go, oh, that was a door slamming Ooh, and settle back down. But like you said, it's when we get stuck. It's when we get into fight or flight and we we can't regulate that it can become a problem. And, you know, in, in light of what you were just asking about the different types of anxiety, it's really good to take the, a little bit of time to to talk about this because we can talk about anxiety very generally. And I know you know that generalized anxiety disorder is definitely one of the one of the uh, types of anxiety that is probably most commonly discussed in a general conversation about anxiety. And that's uh, that's perhaps where I'll start. And so that's lots of worry about lots of things. And <laughs> it's a really sort of easy way to sum it up. Uh, lots of worry. And with that cascade of changes that I mentioned, it creates this domino effect of changes throughout the body that are triggered by the alarm system going off. And that could, that will do everything we need physiologically to power us up to fight or flee. So it's the racing heart, it's the change in breathing, it's the movement of blood from the digestive system to major muscle groups. Um, you can start to sweat. I think most people will be able to relate to that when you get a bit anxious, you start to sweat because that's the cooling mechanism turning on and so on. And so with generalised anxiety disorder, it's generally describes lots of worry about a range of different things. It's not just about one particular thing. 
and accompanying that are, you know, the, the physical side effects of, um, of anxiety. Social anxiety is an interesting one and something that we probably need to think about uh, at the moment. It's, it's going to be something more and more people are probably going to be able to tune into with themselves is that we've been, you know, where we're recording this, uh, you know, we're in lockdown. And we have been for a long time. And the pandemic in general has really told us a story of people potentially being threatening in and of themselves because they might have COVID. And so social length, for, it, it won't surprise me if particularly Melbourne lockdown, more lockdown than anywhere in the world, uh, over 220 days, it, be be prepared if you do when when we are let back into the world if you are feeling some of these symptoms of anxiety when you're back in groups of people or you're back going you know shops or open restaurants it's so um that that's typically social anxiety comes from the point of view of um embarrassment or fear of saying something that is going to, you know, be humiliating, you're going to say the wrong thing, you're not going to be able to flow a conversation, you you might do or say something that's going to alienate you from the social circle. But what I can predict is that when people enter back into kind of normal uh, movements, that this idea of being in a social setting itself might be something just to just to be aware of, just tune in and have that raised awareness of how you feel and, and look after your own um, uh, nervous system, I suppose. If you're finding that it's 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 feeling a little bit threatening, it's really nice to be able to just go, right, I understand why this is happening. I've not been in big groups. I've not, you know, it's not a fear of, you know, being in, embarrassed or saying the wrong thing, but it might just be that the idea that, well, you know, we've been told for so long to stay away from people, stay away. So, the social anxiety is really difficult and it's with any anxiety, they're all really difficult, but they're all self-perpetuating in that if if socially being with people is really hard for you, then you'll avoid that and then you'll feel less connected and more anxious the next time an opportunity comes up and it's really hard. It's a really hard cycle to break um, and and the way you do it is by nudging sort of, you know, at the edge of that discomfort and working out, well, what can I do that's putting me out of my comfort zone with my social anxiety, but still helping me move forward in the direction that's really important to me. And that might be just connecting with one person or two people or in a classroom, you know, Um, kids who don't like sharing in a group might be experiencing social anxiety. And so you might have them have a pair and share um, or, you know, and then just sort of slowly, slowly build on the um, the challenge for that person. Another type of anxiety that uh, many people will re- relate to is the idea of health anxiety. And this is the idea that uh, there's something wrong with me. And I've, I've experienced this. I've experienced a range of different types of anxiety. Overall, uh, generalised anxiety disorder was my diagnosis with, um, I've experienced a lot of OCD as a child, but health anxiety was a huge challenge for me when I was a new mum. And, you know, incidentally, major changes in our life can, can, you know, increase these types of challenges as can major hormonal changes for those of us who uh, you know, having kids for those of us who are women that mental health is linked with hormonal changes. And so it's worth keeping in mind that it's natural to have challenges around childbirth, around menopause and the like. Health anxiety is where you have terrible anxiety that something's wrong with you, with your health, and that a small niggle might be something that's possibly terminal. And that's really overwhelming and sickening, something that I struggled with terribly. And really the way, the only way I could cope with that anxiety was to make lots of appointments at the GP. And so I'd have something small go on, like I'd I'd have a, a headache for a few hours and I'd be 
off to the doctor because in my mind that headache was indicative of something terribly wrong. And I did the same with the kids and it and it it presented in that way when the kids were really, really little, when they were little babies, if there was a little thing happening with them, uh, that would trigger that health anxiety in me and have me running off to the doctor. So it became embarrassing. It became embarrassing because I was there so much, but I didn't have, at that stage, I still didn't have the coping skills to manage my worries. Worries would spiral out of control and um, then you you embody that with all of the physiological changes, that sick feeling in your stomach and just your racing heart and you're sweating and, and you know, it's, it's, it's like the alarms are sounding, it, you know, there's danger and in my mind the only way that I could turn that alarm off was to get the medical advice of a GP. And um, it's funny because my beautiful psychologist, uh, Alec, he, he helped me create this bypass system whereby if there was an ailment uh, in one of the kids that before going to the GP, I would ring my gorgeous friend, Christy, who had already had uh, children, was ahead of me in the parenting kind of uh, experience, uh, in her ex- parenting experience. So I'd run it past her and she'd be able to say, completely normal, seen this before, this is this, um, and also Peter, my husband. And so, but that would work sometimes, but other times it was just like nothing because that, that was my problem. I couldn't stand the feeling. I couldn't stand the feeling of anxiety. And so I had to get rid of it. And the only way I could get rid of it was by seeing a medical professional <laughs> to tell me that my child was not, you know, close to passing. And it sounds, you know, I say it out loud and it just sounds it's it's irrational and that one of the challenges with anxiety is we do think very irrationally because the part of the brain that helps us make good decisions is not available to us when we're anxious because our brain and our body are only um the the you know the only thing that's uh of importance in that moment is survival and so um beyond that uh there's some symptoms of anxiety that uh that can be quite visible. There's a lot of anxiety can be invisible. It's what's going on in your head and an experience in how you feel, but other people may not be able to tell if you don't let them in. Um, but skin picking is a uh, symptom of anxiety that's uh, got a it's got a name. It's called ex- excoriation, which is a pretty awful name, really. And it's just this idea of just you know, pulling at a cuticle, pulling at a quick, scratching something that doesn't feel quite right. And people do it for a couple of reasons. Um, sometimes it's aesthetic, like it doesn't look right, and other other times it, it doesn't feel right. And so, um, yeah, this is something that, uh, you know, I've done in the past as well and I've been really, really working hard to uh, over the years to notice the urge and recognise that, I would be doing it. And um, I wear Uggies at home because um, vanity moved me from picking at the skin around my fingernails to that around my toes. But with this lockdown, it's been a it's it's been a challenge. I know you know Meg. I know you get it. Um, if you've been through this with kids in remote learning, it's been a challenge. Uh, for a myriad of reasons, and um, I've I've realised this week that I've I've been doing pulling the quicks around my fingers again, and that when that happens, because you do it unconsciously, you do it without realising you do it, and all of a sudden you've torn it and it's painful, and you go, "Whoops!" Now I'll stop. So that to me, I mean, I'm I'm actually managing my stress and anxiety well all things considered, <laughs> but that's a sign to me, you know, that I don't know if you've noticed anything about yourself, Meg, that that sort of helps you to recognise that you, you're you feeling a layer of stress or layers that you yeah. Um For me, when I know that I'm feeling stressed, I get racy in my head. Mm. My head gets really busy and I get very quiet. 
So mm. my head's busy, but I'm quiet. So it's like I almost go into this vortex of just me and my thoughts and, you know, getting through the day, like not really talking. So there's this quiet. So that's something that I've noticed about myself and then having the language to say to my husband or to anybody around that it's not you, it's just I've got lots going on and I'm just trying to manage all of this stuff at the moment. So that's definitely something I've noticed myself and I get quite edgy, mm. you know, I get edgy, I am quicker with my temper or just a bit shorter than I would naturally like to be. Yeah. And another thing that I've noticed myself is if I'm feeling anxious, it's almost like I want to dive into some drama or dive into somebody else's life to sort of avoid my own life. And so that's <laughs> something that I've really noticed this lockdown and I've really worked on that just to when things are feeling a little bit out of control, when I'm feeling a bit racy, to come back and to breathe because I notice all of these things are just little signs, little cues, and I'm skilled now in observing them. But once upon a time, I would have no idea. And definitely from reading your beautiful book, Anxious Mums, that was the first time I realised the skin picking. That's Mm -hmm. something that's been for me. And I remember particularly in my uni days, I used to pick my legs to the extent that I'd have to use put band-aids on them. Mm. And so I would pick and it would maybe start with just something small, an ingrown or something, and then all of a sudden, you know, I had wounds. And I never know knew at that time, I didn't have the skills, the strategy, the, the witnessing ability to know that it was big feelings. There's a big transition going from the beautiful bubble of secondary school to going to university and working, all of that. So There's definitely things that pop up for me and I love that you've explained the different types. So generalised anxiety, the way that I remember it, because the name is so beautiful, it's general, like, you know, everything. That social anxiety, I think that's a really interesting one to think about, especially moving forward and that it's going to be normal and healthy to feel a bit uncomfortable because we haven't been doing it for a while. I know even sending... one of the lockdowns, one of the many lockdowns when the kids weren't going to any daycare or anything like that, it was a period of time, but just sending them back, it's a whole new transition because for Mm -hmm. them a week feels like a month. They don't have the ability to think, oh, it's just a week. And so settling back in and then looking at that health anxiety, a question that came up for me is, so the way that some people feel it is, okay, something's wrong, I go to the doctor. Is also the vice versa true that something's wrong, I don't want to seek help, I don't I know something's not right, but I don't want to seek help because they may be telling me something that I don't want to hear and maybe they might have, you know, reading your beautiful book, thinking about, you know, feeding and, you know, breastfeeding mums. I think that's just a big thing. They have so much pressure on themselves to do it perfectly that sometimes is it possible that we don't reach out for help because we don't want to hear what they may say that may challenge us? So can the reverse be true? It can, it can. And you know, some people will, you know, generally speaking that, you know, there's a laser focus on the, on the danger, on the threat, and, you know, that uh, can't really think about much else and it's it's so pervasive. But, yeah, definitely other people will have that so much anxiety. And, you know, we know, we know statistically speaking that men are less likely to seek help for, uh, you know, challenges, health challenges than, than, our, than our women. And, that that's anxiety around that because you know it, it it is frightening and you know what what you said before about that ability to sort of bear witness and and be able to observe what's happening and then that's the first that's the sort of the first step to to being able to use skills and strategies to make change and to affect change whereas sometimes you can just be so caught up in the anxiety um, that there's so much fear that you just want to avoid and that that's that avoidance you know you know, if someone like me needs the reassure, needed the reassurance. And so I would dive in head first. I'd go, hit me with it, whatever it is. I'd rather know because I can deal with it. I will deal with it. Probably not well to begin with. <laughs> I mean, this, this is going back, you know. I think it's yeah. worth me mentioning. I'm 47 now and my eldest is 13. So this is going back. And, um, you know, it, and, yeah, I, I coped terribly with, um, you know, postnatal depression was terrible for me for with both children, but yeah, definitely the avoidance is just so common, and so yeah, that that can definitely happen with 
you know, and that's why sometimes, unfortunately, you know, that that fear and that that discomfort and that dread of if I do go and it is a big deal, what next can, you know, and it and it, it's again, it's not rational, you know, see people going, well, I'm gonna put it off. And and sometimes, unfortunately, let's say it was a a freckle that was changing, you know, you get these things seen early, treatable, depending, you know, most of the time. But you wait and you wait and and sometimes you, you know, and so it's, you know, it's, I understand it. It's hard. There's so much fear and we don't like feeling like that. And so we either dive in to get the help um, or we, we, we avoid when we feel like that. And, uh, you know, people listening will probably be able to reflect and go, well, I wonder, you know, I, I invite you to say, well, what do you do? Do you, can you recognize that's how you're feeling and then start to think about what's the best course of action Depends on what's happening. It depends on what's going on. It's it's so different for so many people. Absolutely. And I think there's that real invitation for people to show compassion to themselves that we're all doing the best we can with what we've got. And also to maybe get a little bit curious about that cycle of avoidance because it sounds like this is a common theme coming through in this conversation is what do you do when you feel uncomfortable? and trying to understand that. And if, if we get into that cycle of this feels uncomfortable, I'll avoid it, that could then turn into a really quite vicious cycle. An example I'm thinking of is public speaking. If you think I'm going to avoid public speaking, so you avoid that thing, the next time there's an opportunity or I avoid that, and there might be something special like someone's wedding, they've asked you to do a reading, you think, oh, I'd really love to do it, but all of this time I haven't had practice. So every time we avoid something, we may be missing out on beautiful opportunities to practice, to develop our skills, you know, to go to that social event, to talk with a friend instead of going to the GP and sort of working that through. So I'd love to understand how can anxiety impact the way people are feeling and functioning in their everyday life? Oh, in so many ways. It, it can really put uh, a stop sign in front of, you know, people's hopes and dreams and ambitions because it does, it, it, it's good to feel safe. It's good to feel comfortable and, you know, but there's no growth there. And so, you know, day to day, somebody with social anxiety will be wondering who's going to invite them to do something, maybe not want to answer a phone, maybe not want to make a call that's important. Uh, I have someone in mind when I say that there's a, um, is a real anxiety in uh, uh, somebody I know who who not good on the phone does not want to pick up the phone and and yet so when something needs repairing in the home or there's an ongoing issue with something that that gets put off and then the issue isn't resolved you know little things from just picking things that many people would not think twice about are really really hard for people with anxiety sometimes it's just. Sometimes there's indecisiveness. Sometimes it's picking up the phone to make a phone call. Sometimes it's going and being in company with other people. You know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, wanting to do something new. I mean, look look at you doing this podcast and, you know, it takes courage. It takes courage to do something new and you, you know, anxiety presents because, you know, there's, there's that expectation that this is something new. I haven't done it before and, you know, I've got to learn new skills and, uh, you know, this is a learning curve for me and it's it's putting something out there into the public. Sorry if I'm building your anxiety now. <laughs> not meaning to do that. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm saying this because, as you know, I'm um, launching a podcast soon myself. And, you know, so something that's meaningful can help to sort of move you in the direction of what you want to do and develop that willingness to tolerate discomfort, be aware of it know what skills to put into practice and how to keep moving forward. But for a lot of people with anxiety, the world can remain much smaller than they'd like it to be because it's really hard to nudge at those edges. Um, you know, and, and you know, I suppose for, for people like us, we're, we're parents, not everyone listening will necessarily be a parent, but, you know, managing your interactions with other people and, you know, one of the things we as parents, one of our roles is to sort of share our calm with our kids, you know, as our kids are learning to regulate their own emotions, that it's important that we can help them co-regulate. And 
when you're anxious uh, and little people are sort of not counting on you because they don't realise that this is happening, but, you know, a big part of your role is to sort of help help them learn how to manage their own big feelings and you're struggling with your own, then it can just pervade at so many different aspects of your life, um, at, you know, at, at, in ways that can, you know, make life really tough for you and, and sometimes pretty tough for the people around you. You just have to ask my husband, Peter. <laughs> Oh, I think what you're sharing really paints a picture for us to really understand how at times, how debilitating it can be if you're really in this cycle of avoidance and fear. And it's a a genuine fear and anxiety in the body of what may happen. This, you know, projected and what I'm coming to my mind is it could be what people may say, how many people might think. So lots of things that we've got no control over. However, we're, you know, thinking and spinning the wheels on that and getting stuck. And I'd love to know, is there any subtle ways that anxiety can present that if you weren't skilled, you wouldn't notice, oh, that's a sign? Mm. Yeah, so um, perhaps perhaps what I'll do before I answer that question is I'll, I'll uh, clarify in a way that might help people be able to recognise their own anxiety in their lives um, uh, as a with a few dot points. Um, that anxiety does impact how we think, how we feel, and what we do, which um, which is what you're alluding to. And so, in in terms of thinking, it's it's concentration, it's decision making, it's problem solving. Uh, there's lots of worry. There's lots of what if questions. Lots of catastrophizing. When it comes to how we feel, big emotions. The amygdala is at the sort of the centre of the um, emotional regulation part of the brain and so lots of big feelings. And in terms of behaviour, you know, we've, we've covered that off in a lot of ways in that avoidance is a, is a huge part of that. But also um, there can be lots of, you know, in a classroom, lots of fidgeting, lots of disruption and, and can seem, it could be viewed as being misbehaving, but sometimes it's just an, you know, an avoidance strategy because the anxiety is so high. You know, in terms of the the subtleties, you know, it's and and it's good it's good to be able to think about it from from the point of view that just anxiety can sometimes just just creep in, and you might not have even you might not have even noticed that you've just put something off, or you're spending a little bit a little bit too time on the um, the design of something where it's the content that really matters. You know, your procrastination is a symptom of anxiety, and you know, there's nothing like a deadline and not quite enough time to, you know, get you over the line eventually. But, you know, these are some of the ways that anxiety, and it's interesting because Seth Godin talks about it and he talks about it as resistance. And it's this resistance, you know, because there's this level of discomfort, you know, there's just this, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And then the initial reaction is that retreat. And so something gets put off. And so it could be anything from, sitting down in your power hour first thing of the day and just going through your emails again for another hour, you know, rather than diving into that, you know, big piece of work that's important and, that you know, that's the time of the day that I need to be doing deep work and really focusing. And so there's lots of little ways that it can start to show up. But, look, just because you do those things doesn't necessarily mean you have an anxiety disorder. Um, anxiety disorders are really it's when anxiety is getting in the way um, of just day-to-day functioning. It's getting in the way of you being able to do everyday things. It's extreme. It's frequent. Um, that was what anxiety was like for me for a long time. It's no longer like that for me. Um, you know, and not not that we're um, full circle yet, but, you know, the first question you asked me was what was sort of, you know, when, when did I start to really want to um, share what I've learned? And it's just that, once you, there's so much you can do, it is treatable. There are powerful thinking strategies. There are powerful physiological strategies uh, that actually show the brain you're safe and help you to settle your system. And so, um, you know, helping to share that and thanks again for inviting me today. It's just a, you know, just a brilliant way for people to be able to just tune in and just go, right, well, okay, I do do that, but it's not a really a big deal. I, I get I get through the day, no problems. Or, hmm, Maybe, maybe it's time to go and sort of, you know, have a chat with the GP and see where I'm at. Maybe it's getting in the way a bit more than I realised. 
I think that's a beautiful invitation for people to just take stock and notice that is it getting in the way of me maybe returning to study or returning to work or going on dates or living life and to work through this discomfort and something that I'm really interested in as as we move forward in this world of uncertainty and trying to understand ourselves and others better what are things we can do if we love someone with anxiety or are friends with or colleagues with someone that you notice you know that they do have some struggles you know for me I remember when I first started teaching, there was a few teachers that were quite standoffish. And originally I thought, oh, they're just painful. You know, they don't like me. That's just what I sort of thought. Mm-hmm. And as I got to know them and worked with them, I realised that it was nothing like that. It was when they were feeling overwhelmed and anxious, they withdrew. And so it wasn't personal. It was just where they are. So I would love for you to give us some tips about how can we walk with people when they're feeling like this. Mm. It's really nice that you've been able to share that, uh, you know, that experience that you've had because it is, I think it's it's human nature, isn't it, at first to go, what what did I do? Like, is it me, you know? And um, it's definitely those of us with anxiety do that a lot. Not not suggesting that that's your, you know, your, your situation, but, you know, I, you know that, that's a really, it's really common when, when you're anxious to, to, to relive the day and go, oh, I said that. That was just, oh, I wish I'd said that differently. I wish I hadn't said that. And, oh, and did they take that the right, you know, anyway. Um, so, you know, to your question and, you know, we, I actually talked, I spent a lot of time talking, I mean, Peter and I, Peter's been amazing, um, but I spent a lot of time talking to him when I was writing the cha- a chapter in the book for, for partners of anxious mums. But in in a in a general sense, well, his first advice was never tell them to calm down. <laughs> that was his first piece of advice because we have a running joke about that around here. Every time someone says it on the TV, we're like, "Yeah, that's helpful." <laughs> um, but look, what what you've just said, you know, sharing your experience is is that um, that empathy. You know, every single human being experiences anxiety. It is. The it's a normal human emotion. It comes and it goes as stressors come and go. And you know when when we can tap into how it feels for us, and then by through extension of that, develop that empathy for another person's ongoing experience of that feeling and that type of thinking. I think that that that's a really nice place to start. Is just to you know, Peter, for example. He, public speaking is something that he uh, doesn't have to do very much in his in his work, but occasionally it's required of him. And like the majority of the population, it's something that evokes anxiety. And so, you know, what, what I was able to do is to say how you feel when you're coming up to a presentation is how, and, and again, this is going back, things are different now, um, but it's how I feel all the time. <laughs> And, you know, for someone, even for someone, you know, just to, you know, you say when you've got had to deliver an oral presentation in the classroom or, you know, somebody you were called on at a, you know, at a work meeting to uh, describe something, deliver something, reflect on something unprepared, you know, that, you know, you, you, you've had a mammogram and you're waiting on your results, you know, we've all had lots and lots of experiences of anxiety. And so to be able to reflect on that and, and think about what how awful that feels and then to know that somebody who has an anxiety disorder, um, that's what they live with. Uh, that's that's the first step because that helps people to sort of like put themselves in somebody else's shoes. And then really a huge thing is, is that validation is when somebody is anxious or upset or anything, no matter what emotion really, it's, it's really a good... A, beautiful strategy that when somebody's upset it's it's a time for I'm so sorry you're feeling like this oh it must be really hard I can understand why you're going through this right now I've been through this too and I know what it feels like and it's it's not much fun is it and um because we want to we want to help we want to and sometimes the person who is the partner or the friend or the colleague of somebody who's anxious about something because they have a prefrontal cortex that is fully operational. 
sometimes it's really easy to see that there's such an easy fix here. I think that that it can be a bit frustrating for a partner, for example, because you can just go, right, here's the problem. I can clearly see what we need to do here. But And there's a time for problem solving, but it's not at the height of anxiety. At the height of anxiety, it's about empathy, validation, and helping that person co-regulation, sharing your calm, and helping that person to use their skill strategies to ground, breathe, show the brain they're safe, settle the anxiety down so that then the prefrontal cortex can come back online and you can actually eventually have a bit of a discussion about, you know, is there a problem to solve? Is there something to be done? Or is this just something that we just go, that's behind me and we move forward? So, um, yeah, they're just a few of the things that, that you know, we can all do for our fellow humans. And, you know, anxiety is a huge challenge for lots of people right now. So, um, yes, hopefully that's helpful. Oh, that makes lots of sense. And, you know, when you're saying like imagine when you're in that state ongoing, you know, I felt that in my body. That would be really hard and that would be exhausting so as you're talking, what's coming to mind for me is I'm guessing for people who are experiencing generalised anxiety or social or however it may be presenting, is it would be quite exhausting on their, mm-hmm. on their system and then that may lead to not wanting to do the exercise or maybe having long sleeps during the day and then they can't sleep at night. And so is that an experience that most people have or that, that tired and fatigue? Very much so. The system and 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 the the system's in overdrive, and I liken it to, you know, a race car stuck in the pits, but your foot's flat on the gas pedal. Well, I say gas pedal. Why do I say that? Accelerator. <laughs> um, because we are we everything every it's a it's an unbelievably intricate response, but it's instantaneous and quite extraordinary in the way that you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, all of our ancestors had um, a fight or flight response that helped them keep safe or we wouldn't be here. And so, you know, from an evolutionary perspective long ago when there were genuine threats to safety, you know, on a, on a reg- very regular basis, whether it be a rival tribe or, a um, you know, a, a predator, predatory animal that might, you know, you, you had to be on the lookout and on alert. And so if your fight or flight you know, switches on and you stay safe, you flee or you freeze or you, you know, you fight and and you live through it, that's the job. That's the job done. That's what the fight or flight response is for. And yet now we, and and, a, and, and so there's other changes, dropping glucose into the bloodstream, you know, for energy, everything is gearing our body up for movement, powerful movement. And, and when we do become anxious during the day, but we don't, you know, um, exercise and movement is like a natural end to the fight or flight response. We're supposed to do something. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's exhausting. It's, it's, it's exhausting because your body's constantly in this state of high alert and vigilance and, you know, your, your heart's racing and you might not be, because it changes our breathing, we tend to breathe in a short, shallow way when we're anxious and it messes up the balance of our carbon dioxide and our oxygen. And so you, you're just not functioning optimally, uh, you know, physiologically when you're highly anxious. And so it, it is exhausting. And sometimes at the end of the day, it's just like, oh, my gosh, you know, you know. And, and unfortunately and cruelly, anxiety affects sleep. If it makes it hard to get to sleep, might make it hard to stay asleep. And, of course, in a perpetual cycle, uh, not getting enough sleep will fuel anxiety. And so it can become a really difficult kind of cycle to break. Oh, I feel exhausted just thinking about that, you know, (laughs) because the idea of, you know, going through that day if you're that Ferrari and then getting to the end like, oh, I survived it, like I got through, and then maybe gearing up to then be anxious about sleep, it feels like for some people there may be no respite in their day. There's mm. no part of the day where they can actually just settle into it and feel in that green zone and working through. So it'd be really great to, because I'm guessing there'd be a few people listening to this going, oh, <laughs> a few light bulbs have gone on for me. 
I'm starting to see things that I probably haven't seen before. I'm starting mm-hmm. to notice some patterns in the way that I feel and function, and it may be verging on un- unhelpful at times. What are some things that people can start doing straight away that can help to soothe their anxious minds? Mm. Exercise is one. So exercise is the natural end to the fight or flight response. Not only that, exercise uh, helps us create more of our feel-good neurotransmitters. And so, you know, and and you just have to look at it. Anti-anxiety medication will be a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So that medication will slow the breakdown of our own serotonin in our brain. And so it makes sense that producing more serotonin uh, is really helpful. So exercise, exercise, exercise are uh, huge. And start the day, start the day with your exercise, get up and get going in the morning. And it doesn't have to be anything uh, highly intensive, you know, just get out for a brisk walk. And uh, that's, that's, you know, a great prescription for anxiety. Another, another really powerful strategy is, is breath work. And, you know, we, we, can show our brains we're safe through our breathing. So somebody might say to us when we're highly anxious that it's okay, you're safe. You know, somebody might say you're safe and that's that's helpful, but the, you can't really tell our brains. We have to show them. And so um, by slowing down our breathing, um, inhaling and exhaling through the nose and uh, focusing on lengthening our exhale, we can really start to... Uh, Put, dampen down that fight or flight response um, and and a grounding exercise, you know, because anxiety is so future focused. It's and, and it's, as well as, you know, focused in the past or did I say the wrong thing or what's going to happen when, you know, you're generally not in the present. And so being able to push your feet into the floor and just really feel that connection or look around outside and notice five or 10 things that you can see or look at something that's close by and really pay attention to it, really focus your attention, bring your attention back into the present moment in a mindful way. Um, These are just some of the ways. Um, And I also wanted to add that with exercise, we release uh, the neurotransmitter, uh, which we call GABA, but it's gamma amino butyric acid. And that's essentially helping put the brakes on the anxiety response uh, so that helps you to take your foot off the pedal a little bit as well. So there are some of the things uh, that, but what I'd encourage people to do is start with a daily routine of whether you choose breathwork or mindfulness and start with a few minutes a day to sort of build that muscle. And so that when you are feeling anxious and you feel it rising, you can draw on that strategy and you've kind of trained yourself to use that strategy um, there are times when we tip over into that yellow fight or flight zone and there's no coming back. Um, you know, that that can happen. But, you know, day-to-day managing anxiety, once we can start to tune in, oh, this is how I feel. Okay, I can feel this is happening. And sometimes I'll say to the kids, even now, you know, because I still have an anxiety disorder, it's just managed. Um, I'll say, I'm feeling anxious. Uh, I need to be alone for 10 minutes, please. Or I'm feeling anxious. My gorgeous daughter will often say, um, mum, just take some deep breaths, which is so cute. So, um, yeah, so there's some of the ways, um, you know, when we can observe what's happening with ourselves, we've got more awareness, then we can bring these strategies into place when, and sorry about that phone call, um, that, that's my husband calling me, he's saying, you've been talking about me. I know my ears have been burning. <laughs> so he'll give up on calling me or he might call the home phone in a minute because he knows we're not anywhere but home. <laughs> no, not a problem. And mm. it's really interesting, I think, that exercise piece because I know for myself I don't have a diagnosis in any way. However, I feel different within 12 to 24 hours if I don't exercise. Mm. Like my body is so used to every morning I'm out for 45 minutes an hour. It could be walking, could be running, could be riding, could be swimming. Well, it is used to that repetitive rhythm in the morning and it really sets me up for the day and I can notice straight away if I haven't had that headspace. And so really trying to invite people, even if you think, oh, I'm not an exerciser, it's too hard for me, to give it a go and just see the benefits because 
I don't think anyone finishes a walk and thinks, oh, I wish I didn't do that. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the hardest part is getting your joggers on and getting out the door. Like that is really the hardest part when it comes to exercise. And something that you mentioned earlier was medications and understanding medications. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I feel that we're in a state where people can be quite binary about medications, like yes, mm. no, it's good, it's bad. And I think we need to have a more nuanced conversations depending on people's context, their diagnosis and their experience. So could you share a little bit more about medication and how helpful it can be for people? Yes, yes, you're right. And there there are, you know, and I was one of them. I was binary. I was, I mean, when I was initially diagnosed with depression, I was prescribed an antidepressant. I, I was the lowest of low. I couldn't work. I couldn't, I could not function. And so I needed some help. And the thing is what the, the idea with medication is that you take medication concurrently with, um, you know, a talking therapy of some kind, you know, with counselling or therapy uh, with a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And the medication helps to, it's this, there are a lot of different types. The one I was on and the one I'm still on is a um, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, when I first took it, it was like, night and day. Uh, I mean, it took weeks for it to come into effect, but just, and, and I shouldn't say it's like night and day in that it, it was gradual, but by the time that the medication was in full effect, it was like night and day. And I had the wherewithal to learn through therapy. I could actually adopt new strategies. And that's when I started meditating, started meditating twice a day for 20 minutes. That was a prescription by my amazing psychologist. And that was in itself life-changing. And so I was on that for about six months and then I thought, this is brilliant. I feel fantastic. I don't need the medication anymore. Went off the medication. No prizes for guessing what happened next. And that was when I sort of started this journey of, oh, I have to I have to work out. I don't want to, in my mind, uh, in my mind it was like, I don't want to put a Band-Aid on and I don't know why I'm bleeding. I want to work out why I'm feeling this way. There's got to be a reason for it. So I spent many, many years, you know, with Alec and, uh, you know, never really kind of still to this day, you know, it, I understand now that, you know, there are different mental illnesses that go flow through, you know, generations, you know, um, ahead of me and that there's a huge genetic component. And sometimes it just takes something to sort of trigger, you know, the, um, the cascade, you know, the the downfall as it was for me at that at that time, and that was the death of Peter's dad that triggered my depression. Um, yeah, so in terms of medication, then I became very binary. I was like, I am not taking it. I am not going to just take a medication because I just feel like I'm just not doing the work. I need to, I need to find out. And I did it. You know, I did a lot of therapy, and it was extraordinary part of my life, and it made a huge difference for me. But um, Ultimately, I look back now and it was a very black and white thinking that I probably would have really benefited from uh, that extra help, you know, th throughout that that period of my life as I was sort of, you know, coming through from a really, you know, serious depression. Um, you know, not, all, not all medication is medication you need to stay on for a long time. Most doctors would, would look at, you know, seeing if you can have it for a period of time and then maybe weaning off or not. doesn't matter. I've been on medication now for a very long time. I went through many, many years of work and and then I had both the kids and then and what I hadn't realised, I mean, I knew it was really hard on Pete, but I wouldn't take it for myself. It was like somehow I was so um, stubborn about, you know, that somehow that was failing, somehow that was giving up. And one day I remember Pete, you know, I, I wasn't able to co-regulate well with the kids, as you can well imagine. Mind you, I, I, I did most of the time. It was just such hard work because I was constantly conscious of being a good mum, even though it was especially hard work because of my mental health. And Pete said to me one day, he said, he said, would would you would you consider it? Because he he on the outside looking in could see that I really needed that extra help, and it was quite serious, and that um, it was affecting all of our lives. And he said, would you think about it? for all of us, for me and the kids. And it was just like this light bulb went off and I'm like, 
of course I could. And it, and it was such a turning point because, and it, you know, it, it's, it's hard to explain. You know, I love Osher Ginsburg said it beautifully, trying to decide the best course of action to take with a brain that needs lots of, you know, with, with a brain that, you know, trying to decide to take medication with a brain that needs medication, <laughs> you know, can can cause problems. And and for me personally, this is my own personal journey, that 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 was the turning point for me just to see it through a different lens, to see that me taking this, this is not about just me anymore. This is about my family. And I started taking it and then I started doing more training in behavioural science and behavioural therapy and I the best thing you can do is apply it to yourself before you share it with the world or other people. And this particular style of therapy was just incredible for me and I've just gone from strength to strength to strength. And I think now about weaning off it, but now it's not the right time in the middle of a pandemic and lockdown with two kids and a dog that has an ear infection. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I will, maybe I won't, I don't know, but it it was absolutely life-changing for me and it means I can live a full, rich life. But it's not about, it's enabled me to be able to put my strategies into practice Um, because you don't rid yourself of anxiety. You don't, you know, you can, and that's not, should never be the, that should never be the goal. We need it because it's protective. Um, But even with me, you know, I am on, I am on medication and, you know, I still, I exercise like you, I exercise every morning and I um, practice my mindfulness and I do my breathing and I use my thinking skills, which have been the most powerful because I was such a worrier. Um, The thinking skills that I've learned and have just been absolutely life-changing. And, you know, even, you know, my own podcast, which is, you know, coming out soon, like there's been some resistance. That anxiety still plays a role, but I'm able to recognise it. I'm able to see it for what it is. I'm able to manage the, the unhelpful thinking and I have a willingness now to accept the discomfort and move forward anyway. And um, so medication has played a really important part in my journey. Um, and it, it's usually something to accompany therapy. But there, there is research that will, that will show you that, um, you know, it's, it's similar in effectiveness to placebo. And maybe if someone went and swapped all my tablets and put them in the same packet, I'd never know the difference. But um, you know, all jokes aside, it's um, it's it's been a really it's been a really important decision for me and my family. Um, and it's something I'd just say to people: it's it's a personal choice. Have the conversation and make an informed decision with help. And whichever way you go, um, you know, as long as you're making an informed choice. Um, that's that's the most powerful choice that we can all make. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that story. And I love that idea of opening up the window of when we're living in homes with families that it's sometimes not about just us and how we're feeling. It's also how that's impacting other people in our lives. And I often think, particularly as parents, we have an additional responsibility to make sure that we're in a space where we can be open and receptive to other people's needs because I think that's really important. And I think about parents as like the Wi-Fi in the house, you know, (laughs) and if the Wi-Fi is a bit crackly, you know, that's what the kids get. So if we can broaden our capacity through exercise, through conversations with therapists, through medication, through whatever it is, why not? Mm. because imagine what it's like if we had a bit more capacity for the discomfort of life that is just surging at us all the time and to be able to be with it, to acknowledge it, to breathe, and, as you said beautifully, to do it anyway. You know, Mm. Jodie, I am so grateful that you have shared your story and your experiences with us. I know without any doubt that this conversation will help people see things that they've never seen before. Mm. Oh, Meg, thank you for saying that. It's, um, you know, I get, I get what uh, Brene Brown calls a vulnerability hangover. I go, oh, oversharing again. <laughs> and, you know, but I, I do it 
knowing, you know, I, I do, I do share a lot and I, and I do it because I think that that, I know when, when I hear of other people's experiences, it helps me to understand myself. It really does. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to talk, you know, with you today and to, to really support anybody, you know, you know, all of the people who's, who are listening, because anybody who listens to this conversation will be able to take something away from it. And if it, if it's, you know, helped that you've sort of had a little peek behind the curtains of my life and some of my experiences and it makes a difference. And it's, it's so worth it. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, I I guess one of the things that, that I've become much more comfortable with is that, you know, when I work, as I work in this area, that when people work with me, they know that I get this stuff from the inside out and the outside in. And so, um, yeah, I do, I do thank you for, you know, you know, having me on and, and inviting me to, to share and, and, you know, helping support your community, um, you know, as, as we continue to move forward. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. So to finish up, I've got a little activity. <laughs> would you like to um, participate? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love to. I would love to. Hit me. Yeah, the teacher's in us. Um, so I've just got four sentence starters and I just invite you to finish the sentence with whatever comes to mind for you. So the first one is I am inspired by. Oh, other people. I'm inspired by the courage and the uh, the bravery of other people who are moving forward and doing hard things, uh, particularly those that are doing hard things to make this world a better place. It's just it, it takes a lot of people to do things for others. So um, I'm constantly uh, inspired by others. And just as a little add-on, I'm following the good news movement on Instagram and it's just it's so inspiring. So I'd really encourage it's, it's not an ad. Um, I'd encourage people to take a look at that and, and bring bring some of that inspiration into your day as well. Oh, I love that. I'll be following. Uh, number two, when life feels hard. Chocolate? No. <laughs> when, when life feels hard, I practice self-compassion. I tell myself that this is hard, but that, and it's okay to feel however I'm feeling, that all feelings are okay. And that uh, I'm not alone in my suffering and my challenge, and that I know it always passes. Mm, beautiful. And number three, an underrated skill is using Canva for graphic design. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. And our final one is I am looking forward to. Oh, I'm looking forward to hugging my mum and dad. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing some of my people when you know when we get a little bit more freedom that's what I'm looking forward to oh that'll just be magic Jody. you are shining a light in areas that we really need to bring more awareness to with compassion and an open heart and an open mind and I really encourage anyone to listen if you are a mum or you know a mum or a soon-to-be mum to go and get anxious mums because I wish that I had read it before I had children because I think that just by reading it, it would have helped me understand my experience but also other mums that I was with, their experience, and there's also anxious kids, so understanding anxious kids and what they're going through. They're two beautiful books that just really give warmth and wisdom into an area that can feel overwhelmed and overwhelming. So I'm guessing maybe if you're feeling anxious, the idea of reading a book about anxiety might be, you know, anxiety provoking. So to move through it, knowing that you've got Jody to hold your hand and move forward. So thank you very much for being a part of the School of Wellbeing, Jody. Oh, thanks for having me, Meg. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Dr. Jody has given us such a beautiful insight into anxiety and how it can present in our daily lives. What struck me most about this conversation is the opportunity for growth. Once we start to notice the signs of anxiety and how it's presenting in the way that we think, feel and act, we can put in deliberate strategies to allow ourselves to move through the discomfort, to process those feelings so we can think clearer be in more connection and experience more joy in our lives. 
I highly recommend Jodie's books, Anxious Kids and Anxious Mums, and her new podcast, Well, Hello, Anxiety. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop. Take a moment and think about the two following questions. Number one, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? What is your take-home message? And number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to improve your well-being? Because remember, good intentions is simply not enough. It requires deliberate, repeated action to take care of ourselves. To keep in the loop with our latest news, special announcements and teacher-proof ways to feel good and live well, subscribe to the well-loved thought of the week. Your free dose of wellbeing education and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. To support the show, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes and share this episode with your family, friends and colleagues. I am so excited about living in a world where we understand ourselves and each other more, where we can witness behaviours, where we can step in with empathy, with compassion and courage to help other people. How good would that be? And that's what these conversations are all about, moving us forward as a collective. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.